Hi there and welcome to another Careers in Health podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Joining me today is ear, nose and throat surgeon, Dr. David McIntosh. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. David, what was it about ENT that first caught your interest? So when I was at university going through uh, the usual sort of initial uh, university lecture series and then more so moving into the transition of hospital-based training, um, I was kind of lucky, I think, because as I went through, I got a feel, uh, as we all do for different people, you get, get exposure to, and you sort of worked out who was happy and who wasn't. And in the fourth year of medical school, uh, we had uh, two guys that were registrars uh, that took us for some tutorials on ENT. And the, the striking thing to me about those two guys was just how happy they were. And, 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 and sadly, um, but truthfully, they really stood out from the crowd. And I, I distinctly remember the day I sort of went home and told my mum and said, I, I'm going to do ENT. And that was, that, was, that, was the, that was the moment, you know, sort of going into this, I think, as many of us do blindly or naively or idealistically, and then the reality hits. And the, the, these two guys were just, you know, just stand out um, just in terms of how happy they were. So it was pretty simple. It was like, I'll have what they're having. Was surgery always the pathway that you were going to go down? No, not necessarily. Uh, there were you know, other things and opportunities that sort of drifted in and out. And that's the great thing about obviously what we do is that you do have a, a massive range of things uh, on offer. And I think as you go through, you sort of, you know, like I said, you get a feel for what you might want to do. And, you know, for me, it was more a feel of what I don't want to do. Um, so, you know, the, whichever way your filter works, you're still narrowing the field. And then, like I said, just stumbled across this, this, this moment in time with these two guys, and that was history. So as an ENT surgeon, what are the sorts of clinical problems that you deal with commonly? So ENT is a huge specialty. Um, I think in, in some respects, I think the viewpoint of ENT is very antiquated because uh, if you were to look at general surgery, how that's evolved, you know, we know that we have colorectal surgeons, we know we have breast endocrine surgeons, etc. If we look at orthopedic surgery, you know, we know we have spinal surgeons, we know we have uh, hip and knee, etc. Uh, and, and ENT is very much the same. It's a, it's a massive specialty. So I think you know, looking at ENT and sort of say, look, what are you doing? You know, what, 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 what does ENT mean? Uh, to me, is not what the ENT is going to mean to someone else, but people still have a generic viewpoint of ENT. So my particular interests are basically three elements of ENT. So one is paediatrics, the second is nose and sinus, and the third is adult obstructive sleep apnea in terms of the surgical applications uh, to, to how we can manage that. So that's my three things. That actually leaves a lot of ENT out of the equation. And that's great because there's other people that fill those gaps. So, so what are those other subspecialties that you can do? So I think I actually wrote them down one day. I think I came up to 11 ENT subspecialties when I actually drilled it down. So uh, I'll have to sort of do my best off the top of my head. So you can be a specific ear surgeon, uh, so what we call an oitologist. Uh, you can be a dedicated uh, sinus surgeon, uh, so what, you know, we call a rhinologist. You can be dedicated to oncology, you could be doing uh, facial plastics, uh, you can do paediatrics, you can do obstructive sleep apnea, you can do uh, laryngology, which is just pure voice box um, type stuff. Uh, so what am I up to? So I've got seven off the top of my head there so far um, and so forth. Uh, you can be a skull-based surgeon, 
so that's sort of often sort of working in conjunction with neurosurgeons as part of that uh, side of things. And look, you know, you, there's obviously overlap. You know, some some um, you know sort of cherry pick from here there to sort of bring that confluence together. Uh, so it's that eight so far. Well, I'll, I'll give you eight off the top of my head. That's a pretty uh, good. Effort. Just in terms of um, you know just on the spot questioning. So, and that's the great, you know, thing about, you know, I think anything that you go into where it, it's, it, that's the specialty, but within the specialty, there's, there's, there's choices that you can make, you know, furthermore. So what do you like about your career? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Okay. So my, my prime focus, if you were to put it into one, one thing, is, is really about this condition called sleep disordered breathing which is the spectrum of upper airway obstruction and the impact that it has on the individual, uh, and in particular in children. Uh, that, that is where the science is, is overwhelmingly staring us in the face and overwhelmingly completely ignored by mainstream medicine. And I'm sure that any other specialist would, would have a similar bend in terms of their niche that they know backwards and then sort of their despair that no one's paying attention to what they think is really important. So the, the reason I justify why I think sleep disorder breathing in paediatrics is really important is because it's roughly speaking probably about 15 to 20% of children. Um, it makes, it's far more common than asthma and diabetes combined. It is the most common chronic healthcare condition of childhood and it's the most undertreated. We're only treating about 10% of kids. So, if, and, and the implications of, of untreated disease are, are very well known from a cardiovascular point of view and from a neurological point of view. So, the, the, you know, the, the mindset that I have is basically that, you know, every child that I get breathing better changes that child's life, you know, it changes their trajectory. It, it steers them towards a better behavioural outcome, a better neurocognitive outcome, a better school outcome. There's, there's just this massive lifelong knock-on effects from basically getting them back on track. And, and it's very satisfying because most of what I have to do to achieve that is actually relatively simple. You know, it's, it's technically not, not difficult, um, you know, when you've had the training. So that's, I think, interesting for the medical students and junior doctors listening to this is that as a specialist, you've developed a special interest in a particular topic. How did that come about and how have you gone about fleshing out your understanding of that? So most of it's self-taught and, and most of it's, again, just been pure circumstance and happenstance because the, the initial introduction was, was with adult obstructive sleep apnea and, again, just in the right place at the right time because one of the ENT surgeons that was training us had taken it upon himself to go over to the US to start learning from some people who had taken it upon themselves to start looking at adult obstructive sleep apnea and surgery uh, for that. So he went and learnt from that and then brought it back to us and it was still an evolving thing and there was, there was trial and error and, and, and mistakes were made. But, you know, if you're going to be a you know, pioneer, well, you, know, you don't know where you're going, but you, you find your pathway. So we got exposure to the adult and then in, in that sort of time frame, we started to appreciate the implications for children. I mean, this is all very, you know, newish in terms of how it, how it was coming about. I mean, historically, when you look back at it, it's not new at all. Like everything we've forgotten and go visit the books and it was all there um, but time just passes by and things wax and wane in terms of what's um, focused upon so anyway so it was, you know we sort of had this thing called adult obstructive sleep apnea which now for you know people just like it's just oh yeah it's just a thing but you know when I went through it was a new thing 
you know, we were sort of, sort of grappling with, you know, what is a sleep study and yeah. so forth and, you know, what does a sleep study mean and what do these numbers mean and, and you know, so, so we had a massive learning curve that I was sort of, you know, not quite in the middle of but certainly, you know, amongst. Uh, and then the, the paediatric conversation started to come into play and then we just, you know, progressed over time. So that was that, that circumstance. And then the next circumstance was uh, just because of my interest in that, um, one of the things I was doing was working regional Queensland and there was a dentist of all people um, who uh, approached me uh, on the premise that he had an interest in, in, in airway things. Uh, and I'm completely naive to this whole field, you know, that, that was actually, yeah. again, out there. I had no idea this thing even existed. Uh, and uh, he sort of said, look, you know, we've got these kids, they can't breathe properly. Um, I'm picking them up as a dentist. Can, you know, can I say, do you do this stuff? And I'm like, this is what I do. Um, so then that, that took me down a rabbit warren of, of trying to learn about what the dentists were seeing and learning about um, themselves and then coming to realise that the dentists had a much more advanced and detailed grasp on this condition than the medical people did. And they weren't just looking at it from the, the, the medical side of things, but they had the dental perspective in terms of jaw growth and development and all sorts of things, which, you know, now, um, you know, as a medical person are all involved, but the, 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 the dentists are miles ahead of us on this one. So developing that, that information and getting that on board as well just changes your whole perspective um, and sort of undermines what you thought you were achieving as an ENT, which is getting all the ENT stuff fixes everything because it doesn't. And you start to work out, oh, gosh, I've actually got to start you know, reframing my approach here um, and developing a, a you know, greater collaboration and so forth um, and, 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 and a different knowledge set. So a lot of what I'm walking around with is really ironically self-taught. Um, in terms of where I sit with, you know, the information that walks around in my head um, and that I keep building upon. So it must be very satisfying to see the end result of that and see patients coming back to see you and reporting good results. Well, there's that, but, I mean, I guess the thing that's evolved too over time that, again, most most of your listeners are going to be completely naive that this thing even, you know, was a thing, but we, we never even had the internet when I was at the university. Yeah. That wasn't even a thing, yeah. you know, that, that, that didn't exist. Um, I remember being in a lecture in 1995 where someone talked about this thing called Google. Um, so I think he, he must have been a bit of a computer nerd because it was all lost on us. Um, damn, I wish I'd bought the shares. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, so the thing that, that I see now is, is just, again, just I, I can't see everyone, I can't fix everyone, but I, I've, I've got the information, so I put it out there on the social medias. Um, very simple terms. And the thing that comes back is, is, is the messages from the parents that, that, you know, this is all over the world now, mm. um, where it's basically, thank you so much for your, you know, your post. Um, I recognise the, the problems that you were talking about in my own child. I went and saw them. Um, they got fixed and they're a different child and I'm so grateful because I would never have known. That's wonderful. So, so it's very satisfying in terms of what you can achieve as an individual, you know, with, with you know, that, that person in front of you. But, you know, you've got you know, a... a, a massive information and if you look at it you know from a medical point of view in general um, medical people and scientists for that matter um, do a terrible job of putting information out absolutely terrible job um, we, we have a mass amount of knowledge and skills and and insights and we do a terrible job of making that accessible to the public 
Uh, we use terminology that is not understood. We talk about conditions that they're not aware of, um, and we do it in such a way that it becomes incomprehensible. And you know, we even do that just just in our consultations, one on one. We'll start to use words, and we'll lose people. Mm. Um, and we do it. You know, we're not doing it deliberately. We're not doing it with arrogance. We're just we're just so you know, oblivious to how much we know and assume that others know. I remember like with the dentist, for example, I went and did a talk. Uh, the very first talk I did with dentists and I talked about um, the adenoids. And you know, I thought I'd done a great talk. I was there with a, a very experienced orthodontist. Um, and then he got up after me and said, look, now I just want to tell you what the adenoids are and where they are. Now, I just made the assumption that dentists knew what adenoids were. It never crossed my mind that that was sort of, you know, a piece of information that needed to be explained and clarified. Um, so that was a real kick up the ass for me in terms of like even that level just really just stop making assumptions. Um, so it, it's it's a good process for humility as well. Doing these sorts of things. Have you uh, actively tried to improve your skills in that area? And if so, how? Uh, that that well, like I said, you just need those moments. So so one of the things that I'm sure many of us can relate to is is that we hate failing. You know, we're sort of, we, you know, if you look at it historically and practically, we were amongst those that did the best at school, and then we got into what is the hardest thing to get into university. Um, we develop confidence, we develop an ego, and and gee, we don't like that being being smashed around. So that, that that's why that sticks in my head. You know, it's just like. As, as much as, as I felt that I'd done a great job, just that moment in time, you know, it wasn't done, you know, with any sort of criticism. It was just like, it was just like, hey, just made to make sure that you guys know what this guy's talking about. Here's the adenoids. It's just that, that was enough mm. to sort of go, all right, I've got to over-explain because, not, not because I'm talking down to people, but I just want to make sure I'm not talking over people. And so from that point of view, uh, you sort of bring it back, but you know you got to do that in your clinical work too. So um, you know I, I just keep it you know as simple as I can, depending on, on who the parent is. And so you know again things that change is a lot of these parents are doing yes you know just accept it. They're doing their own research. They're doing their own reading. They've got you know questions that that are reflective of that, but they, they're, they're questions that generally speaking lack the insight as to you know the implications of their questions. But that's my job to clarify it for them. So you certainly get better. And then the other thing I you know, have moved on and started doing before COVID hit was, was running courses. So uh, and that then was like, all right, let's keep this simple and, and, and practical. How does this all sort of you know, mesh and knit together? Um, and um, if I'm going to use clever words, well, you better explain them. So, you know, every time I do a course, course when I mention obstructive sleep apnea, I go, all right, so let me explain what that means. And then, and then we tell you what is sleep disordered breathing. Let me tell you what that means. And let me tell you about the history of it all and how we sort of learnt over time and how we come to where we are. So I think doing those sorts of things uh, in terms of trying to be an educator, that makes you pull back and, 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 and start to think, all right, well, you know, I've got to make sure that this is digestible information because at the end of the day, the intention is for people to take it on board and use it proactively for the benefit of themselves or their child. David, what about ENT irritates you or you find that isn't as enjoyable as it maybe once was? Yeah. So I guess I'm lucky in that respect because the bits I don't like, I don't do. Yep. And that's the advantage of ENT being such a big specialty. Mm. So uh, it's not to say that, you know, I haven't done it. And it's not to say I don't know what to do. I'm just not interested in doing it. So, again, that's that's it's not so much, you know, I don't, I don't like it. It's, I don't have that problem. 
One thing that I'm very aware of, and this is just pure insight, um, which I think is healthy, is is that I don't have the mindset um, that would cope in a public hospital setting. Um, I, I, I don't cope well with bureaucracy. I don't cope well with inactivity. I, I'm just sort of one of those people that if I'm turning up to work, I, I expect to work. And I will, like for today, for example, um, you know, the morning that we're speaking of, um, I'm about to walk into the operating theatre and we're going to do 15 cases today. Um, and the majority of those are, are, are kids and adults um, that got a breathing problem. Um, and I know it's going to be a full productive day. And I, I just know that I can achieve more um, in that setting uh, and so forth. Um, so, you know, again, it's just having those insights as, as, as to who you are as an individual, as to what suits. I'm very glad and grateful there are, you know, uh, there is the public system. I think it's a fantastic safety net system that we have in this country. Um, and, and for all the people working in there, and I'm sure they have, you know, the same struggles and, and, and irritations at times that, that I'm alluding to, they're just better at coping it with than I am. So, so there are better people to be there for rather than me. David, one of the things about surgical specialties is that a, an unintended result, or possibly a bad result, is more directly related back to, to you as an individual than in some other specialties. Yeah. How do you cope with that when you have something go wrong? Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right, because um, regardless of the scenario, you're seen as the front person. So, for example, uh, if uh, there's a delay in theatre, say there's a piece of equipment that didn't sterilise properly and so forth, and that puts your day back and then everybody's running late. Um, and, you know, it, it, they all look at you. Um, if, if someone um, has an adverse, you know, reaction to the anaesthetic, they look at me. Uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it, and you've just got to have that insight um, to know and understand at the end of the day, um, you know, what I do is part of a bigger picture of things, um, but people still see me as the front person. Yep. You know, if, um, you know, you were to survey, uh, you know, 100 people that we've operated on and say, look, what was the name of the anaesthetist? Most of them wouldn't know, mm. okay? Um, and if you were to ask them and say, did you feel that you waited too long? Most of them would say yes. Um, you know, I, again, I'm old enough to remember back in the day that people were admitted the day before their operation and sat on the hospital bed the day before yeah. just so they were in hospital ready to go the next day. Now people turn up and go home the same day and, and they're, 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 even that, they're, they're, there's an element of impatience there. So um, you just got to take on board what's really your problem and then just, just, just be realistic about the rest and know that at the end of the day, um, as is often the case in a lot of things, people, when they've got a grievance, um, usually take it out on the person that's most in front of them, mostly helping them. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you'll see that, you know, across the board in, in anything, but you're absolutely right. Like for surgery, like any delays or waits, it's, it's my fault. Um, any, you know, adverse, you know, reaction to the anaesthetic, it's my fault. You know, look, fair enough, any, any you know, adverse problem related to the surgery is absolutely my fault. But again, you know, fault is, is, is a difficult word because, and again, this is, you know, I guess the different worlds in terms of perspectives, but we know that things go wrong. It's not necessarily through fault. You know, it's just a, it's just a pure fact of, 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 yep. of, of the reality that, you know, the things that we do carry risks um, and we do our best to, you know, anticipate those things and mitigate against those things um, and then warn people about, you know, you know what could go wrong and, and put it into context. But that doesn't stop things from going wrong. Um, 
and you've got to, you, you know that that's 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 something that probably you've really got to work out how to grasp with because um, again reflecting on that sort of perfectionist type thing that that we develop through our academic achievements and then we hit real world um, can really be quite undermining when you know we've done all the right things um, and you know your specialty for example you do all the right things people still die you that's know right. you know so so people have you know, I think a, a TV show, movie sort of, you know, idea of what we do um, and the perfection of it all. And I don't know about you, but I, I can't watch medical TV shows. I find them so irritating because I know they're so artificial. Um, you know, I, I just can't do it. I don't find them entertaining. I just find them cringeworthy. Um, but the general public don't have that insight. So that, you know, if, if someone was to be having a cardiac arrest and they'd be like, where's your, you know, why aren't you putting the adrenaline syringe into their heart? And you'd be like, <sighs> okay. So, but, you know, that's the real world. You know, that's, that's what we've just got to contend with. So we, we've got to be able to cope with that as individuals. Um, and I don't know that university particularly or any sort of training program particularly, you know, deals with that very well. Um, really, that's the, it's a very individual pathway that you've got to develop. Um, and I think it's very important to develop it early because you're going to have it, you know, so you might as well get ready for it. David, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Real pleasure. Thank you again. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.